Can you uh, picture this for a moment? Every night when a father comes home, he goes through the same routine. Every night when the father comes home, the first thing he does, he walks into the kitchen, he grabs a glass, he opens the refrigerator, and he fills the glass with milk. He then picks up a paper plate, and then he reaches into the cookie jar, grabs about two, three, four cookies, and then he heads to the living room where he can sit in his favorite chair, and for just a few brief moments, he can sit there and enjoy his milk and cookies. Every night, the routine is the same. Well, his three-year-old son has been watching this for the longest time. And you know the old saying, like father, like son. So one night the father comes home and he steps into the kitchen and he sees that his routine has been interrupted. Here's his three-year-old boy with a very determined look on his face. And the little guy doesn't realize that the father's already home and watching him. So the father just stays quiet. He just kind of stays in the background and, and, okay, let's see what's about to happen here. The little guy, he draws out a series of drawers so he can step on them and climb up on the counter. Well, if his mom or dad were in the room, they would immediately reprimand him. You're not to use the drawers like that. You don't step on drawers like that. But the father just keeps his mouth shut. He continues to watch. The little guy climbs up on those drawers. He gets up on the cabinet. Then he stands up and he walks across the cabinet. Again, another no-no. But he walks across so he can get to the cabinet door that has all the glasses. He opens the door, he reaches for the glass that he wants, and in the process of doing that, he knocks a bunch of other glasses onto the floor. Things are getting messy. <laughs> Little boy jumps off the counter, he sets his glass on the floor, he opens up the refrigerator, and he reaches for that big carton of milk, the carton of milk that's awfully heavy, and with those tiny hands trying to pour that milk into the glass seems to be an impossible task. So the boy ends up spilling more milk on the floor than he does the glass. Well, the little guy tries to clean up his mess. He takes his shirt, tries to wipe everything up, and that only makes things worse. When he finally gets enough milk in the glass, the little guy walks over to the cupboard and he grabs a paper plate, and just like his daddy, he reaches into the cookie jar. Well, again, that's another no-no. He's a child. He's not to grab any cookies unless, first of all, he has his parents' permission. You see, at this point, you're beginning to realize this little boy is just doing everything wrong. He finally gets the cookies on his paper plate. He's got his glass of milk. He's ready to head into the living room like father, like son. Well, at this point, the father's starting to get a little concerned and a little annoyed. I mean, we've got a big enough mess in the kitchen right now. We don't need another mess like this in the living room. I think it's time for me to step into the picture and make my presence known. So the father steps forward, and the little boy can hear him. He turns around, not really, oh, Daddy, you're home. I didn't know you were home already. And instantly, that little boy gets the biggest smile on his face. He said, Daddy, I did all of this for you. I, I knew you were coming home soon, so here, here's your milk, here's your cookies, Daddy. I sure love you. And at that moment, how does the father feel? Now, here's the reason why I'm asking this question. Is that not a picture of us? Some days we work really hard to try to please our heavenly father. And yet things don't always come out right. We have these limitations. We can't always reach as high as we need to. So some days when we're trying to serve the Lord, things don't turn out well. We make messes. Even though we mean well, some days we just seem to do more things wrong than right. And then when we've made that mess, we try to clean everything up, and we end up making an even bigger mess. And so at the end of the day, we come to meet with God. How do you think God feels? He sees us there in the midst of all our failures. He sees us there in the midst of all the messes that we've made. How do you think he feels about that? Well, how do you feel when your son or your daughter has done something wrong? Or how do you feel when a dear friend of yours has made a sinful mess out of their lives? 
Are we grieved? Yes. Are we disappointed? Yes. But at the same time, is there not also this deep sense of compassion for them? So that instead of turning away, we find ourselves wanting to draw near, even though this trouble they're in is trouble that they brought upon themselves because they are so precious to us. Even though instead of making everything better, they made everything so much more complicated for us. But in that moment, do you not instinctively find yourself wanting to draw near to help them in this time of need? And why do you feel that way? Because of the enormous love you have for them. That's how God feels about us. And here's the proof. Genesis chapter 18. Here's Abraham and Sarah. They've been following the Lord for 24 years. And they've had some amazing moments in their walk with God. But along the way, they've made some mistakes too. Big mistakes with painful consequences. Huge messes have been created in their relationships with Lot and with Hagar. Life has become so complicated for Abraham and Sarah because they've not always been wise in the way in which they try to serve the Lord. And yet throughout this entire journey, instead of turning away from them, God continually draws near. And especially here in Genesis chapter 18, here we see God drawing near to Abraham and Sarah in the most remarkable way. I want you to see this. Let's read. Genesis 18, verse 1, says the Lord, and it's been mentioned. When you see this word Lord and all four letters are capitalized, we're not just talking about a title, the Lord. It's reflecting the fact that in the Hebrew language, the word that's actually here is actually God's name, his personal name, his covenant name, Yahweh. It's the name God uses when he wants to draw near, when he wants to get close, when in a very personal and meaningful way, he wants to connect with us. So it's Yahweh who appeared to Abraham. And at this particular moment, Abraham doesn't recognize that it's God because God's coming to him in a way like he never has before. For the very first time, here is God appearing as a man. He's coming to Abraham in a human form. And he's coming this way because he doesn't want to scare or intimidate. He wants to be able to relate to both Abraham and Sarah in a way in which they're going to relax. They're going to want to just sit down and open up their hearts and talk and share. God wants this moment with Abraham and Sarah to be something really, really special. So Yahweh appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting, while Abraham was sitting at the entrances of his tent in the heat of the day. It's the middle of the day. It's too hot to work. Abraham's taking a break. God knows that. That's why he came at this specific moment when there's space in Abraham's schedule, when both Abraham and Sarah are going to have all kinds of time to just sit there and talk and visit with the Lord. Verse 2, Abraham looked up and he saw three men standing nearby. Now, the Bible will make it really clear later on in this chapter. These are not three men. One is the Lord and two are angels. It's just Abraham doesn't know that at this point yet. So Abraham looks up and he saw what appeared to be three men off there in the distance. And when he saw them, he, he look at the response. He hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and he bowed low to the ground because right off the bat he can tell whoever these three people are, they're somebody really special, somebody obviously very important, and he wants to treat them with great respect. So verse 3, Abraham said, if I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, my Lord, it's just simply a term of respect. It's his way of saying, sir, you, you guys are obviously on an important journey here. Could I have a moment? Could I have a moment to do something special for you guys? Would, would you stick around for just a second? 
Verse 4, let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree, and let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed, and then you can go on your way. Could, could I do that favor for you? And they all respond, very well. Do as you say. See the openness here. Now, watch the hospitality. I want you to notice the energy and the sense of urgency with which both Abraham and Sarah serve and entertain their guests. They're showing something about their heart. They always mean well. So Abraham hurried. I got a chance to do something. Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of the finest flour, knead it, and bake some bread. Three seahs is huge. I mean, we're talking about enough flour here. If you use all this flour to bake the bread, you could feed an army of more than 100 men. And they're just doing this for three guests. So obviously for these three guests, they're going to have no qualms about reaching out to get second and third helpings because of the huge spread that's going to be laid out in this table. And we're not just talking about quantity. We're talking about quality too. It was the finest flour. We're going to see it's going to be the very best cut of meat. It's going to be the richest kind of dessert. Everything that's set on this table is top notch. I mean, here's Abraham and Sarah literally rolling out the red carpet for their guests. So verse 7, then Abraham ran to the herd and he selected a choice tender calf. Get that, a lamb, a goat, that would have been sufficient. But Abraham, no, 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 I want the best, of the, the very best meat I've got. So he selected a choice tender calf. And he gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. Then Abraham brought some curds and milk. And then when the calf's prepared, he brings that as well. He sets it before his guests and while they ate, he stood near so he can keep the glasses full. So he can keep bringing out the rolls and the butter. I want you three to really enjoy this meal. Now we get to verse 9. Here's where things get interesting. Here's where God begins to talk. And as God talks, he begins to make himself known. And now Abraham and Sarah begin to realize this is no ordinary person sitting at our dinner table. The Lord himself has come just to visit with us. Wow. Where is your wife Sarah? Right away, that gets Abraham's attention. Because Abraham's thinking, hey, you guys have never been here before. How do you know my wife's name? And it's not just that you know her name. You know her new name. Ever since she was born, for years, she was always known as Sarai. But just recently, Genesis chapter 17, just recently the name was changed from Sarai to Sarah. And you know that? Who is it that's sitting here at the dinner table with us? Well, it's God. And think about this. Why is God asking the question, where's Sarah? I mean, God knows who Sarah is. And he knows where she is right now. She's there inside the tent. So why is he asking the question? Obviously, he's not asking it to get information. He's asking the question because he wants a response. He's trying to engage Abraham and Sarah. He wants them to open up and begin to talk. You see this all the way through the book of Genesis. You remember, you go back to Genesis chapter 3, and God comes to the Garden of Eden right after Adam and Eve's sin. And what's the first thing God does? He asks the question, where are you? Well, he knows where they are. They're hiding. They're hiding in fear and shame. But with this question, God is just trying to gently encourage him. Come on, stop hiding. Come out here and talk to me. I'm not here to clobber you. Yeah, there's going to be some discipline. But it's going to be discipline administered with lots and lots of love. Adam, Eve, come here. Let's talk about what happened here today and how I can make things right for you. Same thing, Genesis chapter 4, right after Cain had murdered his brother Abel, God comes to confront Cain. But what's the first thing God does? He asks the question, where's your brother Abel? Well, God knows what's happened. Why is he asking the question? He's trying to get Cain to talk. He wants to engage his heart. So it is here, Genesis chapter 18. 24 years ago, God made a promise to Abraham and Sarah they were going to have a son. Now, 24 years later, and nothing's happened yet. 
It's getting harder and harder for Abraham and Sarah to believe the promise is ever going to come true. And that's why God, in this very personal way, on this day, comes and approaches him. Come on, Abraham, Sarah, I know 24 years, man, that's a long time. Tell me about your doubts. Tell me about your struggles. Open up and let me hear what's on your heart. That's the whole reason I'm here today. I'm here to help. I'm here to encourage. So God asks the question, where is Sarah? And Abraham responds there in the tent. And then one of them, obviously the Lord, verse 10, he says, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Well, Sarah's listening. This is the first time Abraham's had this privilege before of hearing the voice of God, but never Sarah. This is her first time to hear, actually hear God's voice. Sarah's listening at the entrance of the tent right there behind Abraham. Abraham and Sarah are already very old. Sarah's well past the age of childbearing. So when she hears what God says, what she do? She laughs. I would too. And you know the kind of laugh we're talking about. We're talking about the kind of laugh when somebody says zero down and no payments for the next six months. Yeah, right. <laughs> Show me the fine print. Or bipartisan effort. Yeah, right. I've heard that one before. Or justice for all. Sure. Sarah laughs inside, in her mind, just herself. Nobody else can hear. This is just what she's thinking. After I'm worn out, my Lord, my husband, Abraham is old. I will now have this pleasure. You're putting me on. And then Yahweh said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And say, well, I really have a child now that I'm old. Is anything too hard for Yahweh? No, it isn't. Know this. I will return at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And right away, Sarah's scared because now she realizes this is God. I mean, here's God proving nothing's too difficult for him. If he can read her mind, if he can know her innermost thoughts, then he can take that empty womb and make something special happen there. But suddenly Sarah realizes, I've been laughing at God. Oh, that's so respectful, or disrespectful. And so she trembles, and in, her, in, her, in the midst of all her insecurity, she tries to cover things up. Sarah was afraid, and she lies. Oh, I didn't laugh. And God said, yes, you did laugh, Sarah. Now, understand God's response. I don't think God's being harsh. I think God's just trying to gently encourage Sarah. Sarah, just be honest with me. Don't pretend to be something that you're not. I know you're struggling right now. I know it's hard to believe. So don't be ashamed to show me those doubts and fears. It's the whole reason I'm here. I'm here to help. Sarah, I want you to know a year from now, you and Abraham are going to be laughing so hard because of the joy you feel, the enormous joy that'll be yours because Isaac has been born and I'm the one who's going to bring you that joy. You've heard me talk about this before. One of the struggles that a baby goes through is a baby cannot control their feelings. They cannot govern their emotions. I mean, the least little bit of distress and it, it feels like an emergency to them. And it doesn't matter if they're scared or mad or sad or frustrated, any little bit of trouble. And it's like the end of the world has come. So the baby starts to cry and the baby screams. And when the baby starts crying, it's impossible for the baby to calm themselves down. That's why they need a mother. They need a mother to come along and pick them up and hold them. Pediatricians call this containment. And what they mean is when the mother picks up the child and begins to hug the child, it, it, through that gesture, it's like the mother's way of saying, I'm not going to let your emotions run wild. I'm not going to let the feelings just run loose. I'm going to get a hold on things. These strong emotions, these scary feelings you're feeling right now, I know this is too big for you to contain, but it's not too big for me. I'm going to get a handle on this for you. You're in a state of panic right now, but I'm not. And I'm going to get you through this. So the mother 
holds the child and hugs the child. And as she holds the child, she sings to the child. And as she holds the child, she talks to the child. And as she holds the child, she sits down in a rocking chair and she'll rock back and forth until eventually the little one will begin to quiet down. Or she'll stand up and bounce and play with the child until eventually the baby begins to calm down. And eventually the baby begins to experience this peace. But get this, the baby can never experience that peace on its own. The peace can only be theirs because of who is holding them, because of who is helping them. That's what God is doing for Abraham and Sarah here in Genesis chapter 18. In other words, we are learning there's this other realm, this other dimension to our faith. Let me explain. Sometimes when God calls, he's, asked, he's, he's looking for a response. He's expecting us to do something. We show our faith by the action that we take. For example, when God told Abraham to leave the city of Ur and move to the, to, to, to the land of Canaan, there was something that Abraham needed to do. Not easy. Pack your bags, leave home. I mean, for 75 years, this is the only place he's ever been. And move to a place he's never heard of before. Man, was that hard. I mean, there must have been a lump in his throat that day when he packed everything up and headed off for, where, what's this place called, Canaan? But there was something he needed to do. But when God makes this promise to Abraham and Sarah, when he tells them you're going to have a son, now we've stepped into a completely different realm. Because you see, Sarah's unable to conceive. And now Sarah's, then eventually she reaches an age where she's beyond the capacity to conceive. So if this promise is ever going to come true, there's nothing Sarah can do except just climb up into the arms of God and let God hold you. Climb up into the arms of God and just put your trust in him and let God make the promise come true. Do you see the difference? Sometimes God will nudge and he'll push and he'll get involved in our lives and say, hey, it's time for you to, to, to join that team. It's time for you to go to work. It's time for you to, I, I need you to do something. It's time for you to serve. Or sometimes God may call for you to take a stand at work in the midst of all that gossip and dishonesty. You've got to refuse to participate. You've got to refuse to go along with what you know to be wrong. There's something you need to do. But there are other times when we find ourselves in a set of circumstances where the hands are tied and there's nothing we can do except put our trust in God. You know, the cancer is spread. The doctor tells you the chemotherapy is not working anymore. There's, there's nothing more we can do. And at that moment, all you can do is just climb up into the arms of God and say, God, from this moment on, you're just going to have to carry me. Or you've given a lifetime of service to this company, and then they lay you off, and there's no severance. And at your age, you're old enough now, you're never going to find another job with comparable pay and benefits, and you're thinking, how am I going to make ends meet? I mean, at that point, there's not a whole lot you can do except climb up into the arms of God and say, God, if we're going to move forward in this situation, it's going to be because of you, not me. I've got to put my trust in you. You see, that's why we come here on a Sunday morning. And that's why when we come on a Sunday morning, we sing and we pray and we read God's word because through every one of those activities, we are inviting the Lord to wrap his arms around us. God, the worry, the fear, it's too much. I can't contain it anymore. This is too hard for me. But I know it's not too hard for you. I'm here today, God, because I want you to hold me. I want you to help me. I want you to keep me close to your heart. God, today, I'm putting my trust in you. Let's pray. God, do for us what you did for Abraham and Sarah.
draw near to us and bring us into that special moment of fellowship with you where we can begin to see and realize that awesome love that you have for us. God, don't let us ever be deceived. You know the truth about us. Nothing's hidden from your view. You know about our weaknesses, our faults, our failings. You see all the messes we make, and yet you still love us anyway. God, today, would you help us to believe again? Would you help us to have confidence in that love that you have for us so that when we hit one of those difficult moments, we will not hesitate to draw near to you. We will not hesitate to put our trust in you. God, today I'm asking you for that help, for that special kind of encouragement. And I ask you for this grace. In Jesus' name, amen.